Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, good morning, church. Uh, we made it, guys. We're almost to 2024, and I need that. I need to get out of this year <laughs> and look forward to some good things coming. Um, and so to do that this morning, guys, we're actually going to take a pause in our sermon series in John to kind of get us ready for 2024. And so here's what we're going to be covering today. Uh, four reasons why you should read the Bible in 2024, okay? Four reasons why you should make the Bible central to your life. Guys, I don't know if you're like me, uh, 2023 was just tough. A lot of things going on with my family's health and challenges and setbacks. And it was just a really challenging year for me. And from what I've heard from many of you, the same has been true for you. And we need something to anchor us in when life is hard. We face suffering, when culture's telling us all kinds of messages about how we should think about ourselves or life or anything. And we need something that's unchangeable, something that's steady, something that's sure. And that's what the scriptures are. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And I pray that this message is not something that's just like browbeating, like read your Bible, do better, near you, uh, a new you, new year, all that kind of stuff. Like that's not really the goal. The goal is sort of to re-motivate your heart, to find God's word to be not just a tool, but something that you treasure. That if you have maybe not read the Bible in a while or you don't find yourself familiar with maybe its content, that maybe you would consider this sermon as something that kind of motivates your heart to maybe read again, maybe trust again, maybe consider the claims of what the Bible has to offer. So let's jump in, guys. Um, This book that's in my hand, the scriptures, and the book that's in your seats, guys, it contains 66 collective books. And it's written over 1,500 years by roughly 40 authors in three different languages over three different continents. It contains almost 1,200 total chapters in it, roughly 31,000 verses. And all of that totals up to roughly 760,000 words. And guys, all of this makes up the world's most popular possession, which is indeed the Bible. In fact, the Bible has sold more copies than any other book literally in human history. It holds the record of an estimated between five and seven billion copies sold and distributed. And that research was conducted in 2021 by British Foreign Bible Society. The most popular book literally in the world is the Bible. However, the Bible's also the most most controversial book in human history, in our modern day especially. Guys, some people call the Bible uh, a book of just moral fables. It's just a book of made-up stories about how one ought to live. Some people call the Bible a corrupt book that men just put together in order to suppress people or take over nations, and it's full of errors and contradictions, some say. But some say the Bible is actually God giving us his words. It's recorded for us as God, as the ultimate author through human authors. It has salvation for its end in truth without any mixture of error for its content. And so the question I have for you today is, what should you though believe about the Bible? And what should you do, Christian, with the Bible? Guys, in our modern day of science and philosophy and secularism, are we like really supposed to believe what the Bible has to say anymore? Like, is it really even relevant? Is it accurate? Should I take an ancient source and abide by it in my modern day life? And if so, where do I even start? Well, guys, to even consider trusting the Bible in general, let's first look about what the Bible actually claims about itself. Because if the Bible doesn't claim that you should read it or trust it or that it's without error, if it doesn't even say that, then why are we even talking about this? 
And so to do that, we'll be looking at Psalm 19 today, Psalm 19. And as we do, Christian, I wanna ask you one specific question. Christian, if you really believe that the Bible is God's word, do you actually read it? Amen. Good answer. Let's close down in prayer. Dear Lord, no, I'm just kidding. Excellent. Do you actually read this word though, that you claim to be God's very word and direction? And if you do read it then, do you actually seek to treasure it and follow it? Do you treat it as a central guiding and nourishing source that you claim it to be? And if so, let me just be honest, like how much time do you really spend studying it now? If you're really honest, a lot of us have been the, in the room, have been a Christian for a while, and your best Bible reading and studying is behind you. It was your college years. It was when you were in crew or intervarsity, or is it, it's the first year you became a Christian. And you've been leaning on that knowledge informationally for years. And your heart has grown cold in intimacy with God. And although that Bible reading was good that you should have done back in the day, if you just are leaning on knowledge from the past and not knowledge of God now in the current, in your life, in your circumstances, we're not doing what we are called to do as Christians with God's word. So Christian, again, how often do you seek God through your scripture reading, not to just get it done, but actually wait, do it slowly and actually seek for God in the scripture, like wrestle with the text until you feel like you've met with God. Do you seek him out for guidance there and for comfort, for worship and direction? In other words, how often are you letting the Bible guide the life that you live? Christians, we're the one that calls it God's word. And if it is God's word, why is it not affecting our world as much? Because are you using it to help you deal with conflict in your relationships? Is it affecting how you parent? Is it shaping your heart as you go into work? Does it help you shape your decision-making and what you prioritize or what thoughts or actions that you need to turn away from? Does it, do you allow it to guide you for your good? Guys, is the Bible really central to your life is the big question we're asking today. For guys, if we're honest, to answer that question, we can really just look at our behavior. Our behavior always dictates our belief. The more we're in God's word with our behavior, the more we're trusting in our hearts that it really is God's word for our good and his glory. So guys, listen, again, my goal is not today to just kind of guilt you into more Bible reading and throw a Bible reading plan in your face and kind of pat you on the back and throw you out in the world. That's not really my goal. It's, it's this. My goal is really today to try to recapture your affections your affections for God's word. And then through that, it's to renew your pursuit of God's word. That's my goal in today's message. So with that, here are four reasons why I want you to consider really shaping your life around the scripture this year. Four things. Number one, the Bible records a message you can trust. The Bible reveals a person you long to know. The Bible releases a power that changes lives. And the Bible relays both warnings and rewards to those who heed them. So as we explore four things, guys, I want you to open up your mind and your heart and consider the claims, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. I still want you to consider these things about the scriptures and maybe inside of your heart, you really think, maybe I really do need this. Maybe it's not just a set of laws that I'm supposed to obey. And if I don't, God strikes me down with lightning, which is often what the culture thinks about the scriptures. But maybe if you were honest with yourself, you need something to comfort you, to guide you, to hold you steady, to give you promises when you can't see clearly what God's doing. And this is what the scriptures are offering to us. So the first claim here is found in verse 7 about what we're to believe about the scriptures. In verse seven, let's look at it together. Verse seven of Psalm 19 says this, 
the law of the Lord is perfect. And guys, if you think about that for a moment, that's a huge claim. The Bible is claiming that its words are perfect. That word perfect meaning they're complete and they're without error. In fact, look at what the other verses say about the Bible. Not only does the Bible itself claim to be perfect, verse 7b says the testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. Verse 8b, the commandments of the Lord are pure. Verse 9b, the rules of the Lord are true. Did you guys catch those five adjectives? If not, I made them yellow for you so you can see them on the screen there. These five adjectives I just read, perfect, sure, right, pure, and true, all describe for us one glorious fact about the Bible. It's proclaiming to you that the Bible is trustworthy, like you can trust it, which is the very first thing we're going to see in point one. The Bible records a message that you can trust. Guys, I don't know what you've been through in your life. You may have been betrayed by people that you thought would never betray you. Whether that was a parent, a guardian, a spouse, a friend, coworker, boss. And we need something that we can look at and we can rely on. It's timeless, it's unchangeable, it's steady, and it won't lie to us. If we build our life on its foundation, it'll be like a cornerstone and not sinking sands, that if I trust its commands and I hope in its promises, then I will not be led astray. This is what the Bible is promising. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that claim. His testimonies are perfect. They're sure, they're right. Like really think about what we're believing here. Isn't that kind of crazy? If this is true, that means roughly 760,000 words that are in this Bible. It's proclaiming that they're without error, they're without contradiction, and therefore it's, we're without excuse for not reading them and, and trusting them and treasuring them because they claim to be the very words of God. That is, if all of them are indeed, as the Bible claims, to be perfect and sure and right and pure and true. But so the question for us really is, how do we know if that's the case? If I'm asking you today to build your life around the scriptures and let it guide you, then that we better be sure that this is a trustworthy book or we are wasting our lives and we are wasting our time. And Christianity is a people to be pitied if this book isn't really of God. So how would we know if it is? Because there are ample resources on that very question. And I just today want to give you four quick tests. Now, I briefly shared this with you before. And so every time, every year, I'm trying to give you one sermon that reminds us of these four tests. If you'd like to talk with someone a little bit more specialized in this, who have studied this, take a little bit more time, I'd really encourage you to talk with Brandon. He's on our pastoral track. He can give you ample resources. And today, I just want to give you four tests to how do you know, how would you determine for yourself the evidence of the Bible being reliable? Here's the first test. The first thing, if you want to seek this out to know if you can trust it, look at historical records. Because you can access this online. You can go to your local library. You can access historical records to see if what the Bible claims as history is what history it really is in reality. Guys, I want you to look at the people and the places, look at the dates in the Bible, look at the archaeology, look at the geography. I want you to look at the events in the Bible and look at the historical records and you will see that they coincide with reality. Guys, even many historians, scholars, archaeologists have looked at the Bible to do archaeological digs and they have found cultures and societies that have actually existed that we didn't have resources on in general. They looked at the Bible, they found these things, they went and did a dig and they found the society that the Bible told was true. In fact, some scholars even will look at the Bible and say, hey, that society never existed. We don't find any proof. And then you wait 50 or 60 years and there was an archaeological dig and then we see some sort of writing that they found on pottery or they found on a 
column or part of their building. And then you see these names of people that were in the scriptures. Guys, the Bible is not actually a joke. The Smithsonian Museum even looks at the Bible and says, yes, it's a reliable document. And it doesn't say that of other religious texts. So the first thing, if you really want to consider, is the Bible reliable? At least look first at historical evidence. Line the two up to see really if the testimony of the Lord is sure. The second test I'd say is look at some early manuscripts. Look at the earliest manuscripts that we have at least of the New Testament. Guys, what what blows my mind is that we have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other ancient writing. Over 5,000 in the Greek text of the New Testament. And we only have a few of other writers like you would know. Tacitus or Caesar, about their history. We only have a few manuscript copies of those, but we've got 5,000 some just of the Greek language manuscripts. And if you put them all together and you look, are there consistencies? Are there contradictions? You measure them all up. And we find that there is 99% accuracy amongst 5,000 transcripts. So it's not the telephone game. Write it down and a guy misinterprets it and another scribe writes it. And then we have two different stories. It's not what happened. And if you're like me, you're like, well, what about the 1% there, Pastor Boy? What, do you, what about that 1% that doesn't line up? Some of those things are simple scribal errors where they would leave out maybe one letter or one dot or they missed a line as they were going line by line by line. But nothing of that 1% is a theological error or a misinterpretation of a city or a place simply just maybe a letter left off of something. And to know which one's right, you can see all the copies that had all the correct things and then a copy or two that missed a letter here or there. Guys, we can look at the earliest manuscripts and we can see the precision in which the originals were copied. And we can look at these and we can say, okay, there wasn't a telephone game where stories got mixed up over time. And these copies were written so close to the original thing happening And other things in history, there's usually 100 years or 200 years or 500 year gaps between the actual event and the earliest manuscripts that we see. But within the New Testament, it's within decades, years even of the actual event so you can trust it. It's written by people that were there and tested by people that were there. Guys, it's reliable. You can look at this and say, okay, this was actually written down with the intent for people to believe it. And there's enough copies that I can match them up to see if it's reliable. So yes, look at historical documents. Look at earliest manuscripts. Number three, look at the prophecies that are in the scriptures. Look at the prophecies. Guys, so far, all of the prophecies and dates that were foretold in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the New Testament authors, all of those prophecies happened so far with 100% accuracy. Now, the thing is that in the Old Testament, they didn't like write down "Hmm, the prophecy is going to be, it's going to rain sometime in the next decade. And then all of a sudden the next decade happens and it rains and they're like, aha, gotcha. Told you, like the prophecies were specific about kings that would rise and fall and lands that were going to be taken over and kings that would happen and what would go on with lands and laws and all sorts of things. All of those prophecies and even the ones about Christ, there's over 300 prophecies proclaiming when a Messiah would be born and where they would be born and what circumstance would be happen for them to be born. How would they die through crucifixion and what would happen with his clothes? 700 years before they even got there, the Messiah. Guys, if you just look at the prophecies of what was foretold, what was predicted, guys, if those don't line up, then there's no point for you to believe the scripture. There's no point to believe the New Testament if the Old Testament prophecies about the New Testament didn't happen. But they line up over and over and over again. Then the last thing here, guys, I want you to look at the faith claims. If you've been through the first tests and you've got kind of your investigative uh, uh, goggles on and you're looking through, you look at your historical test, your manuscript test, you're looking through your prophecies test, and then you get to the faith claims. Guys, just think about this for a moment. 
The scripture was written by shepherds and kings. It was written by scholars and fishermen. It was written by prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, a priest, and a doctor. All penned portions of the scripture. In fact, again, God used roughly 40 different human authors to pen the Bible over a period of 1,500 years, three different continents and three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. These facts alone make the Bible one of a kind. And with all that time and all those authors without being able to meet together over a table, like a writer's guild kind of coming together and saying, what should we write about about this episode of Friends or whatever? They can all agree on what to write about. But over 1,500 years and three continents and three languages, how do you get any continuity? How? But if you look at this, despite the marvelous array of topics that the Bible has in it and written in radically different times to radically different context, the Bible's many authors write with a flawless internal consistency, way more than any other religious text. From all this diversity of authorship actually comes an incredible unity. It's like someone's guiding the pen. It never contradicts itself. And even if there's a perceived contradiction, like you can see that there's a date of when a king becomes a king and um, first Kings and then Chronicles, there's a different date. And you're like, ha, there's a contradiction. But the more you look into it, it's the fact that this king actually became king legally when he was eight years old, but he didn't become ruling king until he was older. Well, that date didn't make sense, doesn't it? Become legally king at this age, but you're eight years old and you shouldn't be leading until later. So this is the year they're going to record when he practices as king. Because if you read the faith claims and you look at it, there is consistency. There's one main message. There's one main theme. It's God's eternal plan from creation to the flood to Christ's works on the cross to the culmination in heaven. You can see the same things pointing to the same things about the glory of God. You find the same truth stated by Moses in the Old Testament and the prophets that Christ says himself and then Christ's apostles in the New Testament. Guys, all these faith claims line up with an internal consistency that's found in no other text in the world. Guys, the Bible really is trustworthy. And when culture tells us that the Bible is to oppress women or it, it wanted slavery. It, guys, the, in fact, guys, I wish, and Brandon might do a message on this, guys, I, I wish you knew how revolutionary the Bible was during that day for the liberation and love and good treatment of women. Yes, has it been used in a terrible way by people that misinterpret and misalign it? Yes. But the way it's originally written was actually to lift up women, to give them love and equality and say, yes, we're made equal in the image of God. Guys, there's so much more that we could talk here about, about what the Bible's original authorship and intent was and how evil people have used it. But if you just on a base level, look at the faith claims, guys, when we walk away, you gotta say, man, there, there's something about that book that everything is lining up here. There's an internal consistency in each of the chapters with different authors, all pointing us to Jesus over and over again. It's a beautiful book. So what does that leave us? If these 760,000 words are without error, then what will they do for you? They will lead your life away from error, away from harm that you might choose with your own actions. So church, let me ask you, have you really and honestly, like have you honestly read all of the scriptures? Like thoroughly wrestled with whether you believe them, where you struggle with them, and do you regularly seek God through these scriptures? Do you revolve your life around them daily? And most importantly, do you treasure them because they really do reveal to us who God is? My friends, we must, because the scriptures are leading us to joy in Christ and they will never lead us astray because they do not have error. And guys, we must know God's word, not just intellectually, but we gotta know it intimately. Guys, for, for my wife, I love dating my wife. We went on a, a date night on Wednesday night. Jenna came over and took care of the kids and watched Disney Plus and hung out and ate food or whatever she did over there. And, and we had a great date night. 
and I love going on dates with my wife. Here's what I would hate doing. If I'm like, all right, Emily, let's go on a date. And she's just like, hey, here's a sheet of paper with a bunch of information about me and just go on your date. And then I'm just supposed to intellectually read all that information and enjoy time with her. That date would be terrible, be miserable for me. That's not what God's doing with his word. God's not giving you a cold, dead document. He's actually giving you a living word. That's what the Bible calls itself. It's living and active. It's not this cold document to give someone, just read this and get to know me. God's like, no, 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 you read these words and I come to life. If you sit with them and you study them, if you meditate, you reflect on them, you work through the meaning and you'll find me. You will find me here. Guys, we must trust God's word when he says that he alone can satisfy because this culture, our world that we live in, our own hearts will tell us we've got to look somewhere else to be satisfied. We can't look to God's word because pornography or a relationship, a promotion, a new job, a bigger house, if I could get that car, a financial status or security, if I could get married, if I could have a kid, maybe if I could get divorced, or maybe if I could have this dark hidden sin that I can keep right here, then I'll be satisfied. Guys, when we turn to God's word, God's word is showing us where hope can be found, where life can be found. It leads us out of sin into satisfaction. It guides our hearts. The question is, are you letting it? Are you letting it? Second thing here, second thing, is the Bible reveals a person that you're really, your heart longs to know. You may not know this immediately or as you're growing up, you're like, ah, does, what does my heart long to know? Like you don't think about that intellectually, but your heart does long to know someone and to be known by them. And the Bible reveals this person. Guys, uh, my aunt Sandy was uh, adopted as a baby when she was only a few days old. And she grew up always wondering about her biological family. And she had so many questions like who were they and what were they like and all of these things that she wanted to know. And so in her 60s, she just couldn't take it any longer and she just had to know, she longed to know. So she took all these DNA tests and she tried to find family trees and she looked up court documents and she's showing me these one time when we're up visiting and she finally found her bio mom and a sister that she didn't know that she had. And even when she found all that, she didn't find the belonging that she thought she would. She wouldn't find the connection that she had hoped for. There was some certain joy that she had, but a certain sense of sadness because it didn't really line up with what she thought belonging to this family would be like. And guys, what Sandy was searching for all along, which was love and connection and belonging, was really what we all long for. And we all search for it in different ways. You might not do it with 23andMe DNA, but we all long to be fully known and be fully loved. And our deepest fear is to be fully known and not loved at all. And so many of us will hide behind success, hide behind academics, hide behind alcohol, hide behind just a a really thin veneer of relationships and not really get too involved in community group or share what's going on in your life. We just kind of keep it out here because we're afraid if we're gonna be fully known, then we won't be fully loved. And all of us at our deepest core, you wanna be known. You want someone to say, hey, I know what you're going through. I see you. I know how hard things are. And in that, I will fully love you no matter what you've done. And this is what Christ in the gospel is offering us. Guys, God doesn't leave us to search for that person in of ourselves. He sought to reveal this person, which is himself. He seeks to give us meaning and purpose and belonging and approval to give us the love that we all long for. And how do I know this again? Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And here's what it says. The testimony of the Lord, this is his story. The testimony of the Lord, it's sure. It's making wise the simple. So what's the testimony of the Lord, you may ask? What's the testimony? It's God revealing himself to you to fulfill your lives in him. Like that's what the Bible is actually all about. All of the Bible is a testimony to the heart, the actions, and the character of God. That's what the entire thing's about. It's an invitation for you to know him, to know his gospel, 
and to find satisfaction in him. Guys, we know that the scripture is God revealing himself to us because of Luke 24, 27. And I love this passage. I love this. Here's what it says. It says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to these men all of the scriptures. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I love that. Jesus sat down with these guys as they were walking on the road to Emmaus. I guess he wasn't sitting down with them, but you get what I'm trying to say metaphorically. Walking with them and he's going through all of the scriptures, pointing out how each book, each passage pointed to him so that they could further know about him. Guys, in fact, if you were there that day in Luke 24, Jesus would walk through each book of the Old Testament and show you how they point to him. And guys, if you've been here about once a year, I do this to go through every book of the Bible to show you how it points to Jesus. One time a year, I try to do it every year so you can see the point that Jesus is trying to reveal himself clearly to you because he's the one that you really do need. So here's what that day would have sounded like. Jesus would have sat with these men and he said, hey guys, in Genesis, I am the word of God that created the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, he was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorpost of your heart so that you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, he was the temple, the holy place where you can meet with God. In Numbers, he was the ever-present guide, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he was the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. In Joshua, he was the conquering warrior leading you into the promised land. In Judges, he was the broken savior rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, he was your kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he was a pure-hearted shepherd king who rushed out to face your giants alone. In First and Second Kings, he was the righteous ruler. In First and Second Chronicles, he was the restorer of the kingdom. In Isaiah, he was the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he was the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he was the advocate, risking his life to restore you to royalty. In Job, he was your living redeemer. In Psalms, he was the one who hears your cries. In Proverbs, he is wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, he is the meaning that lets you escape the madness. In the Song of Solomon, he is your lover and your bridegroom. In Isaiah, as we've studied, he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's the one wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. In Jeremiah, he is the spirit that writes God's laws on our hearts. In Lamentations, he was the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he was the river of life bringing healing to all the nations. In Daniel, he was the fourth man that was found in that fire. In Hosea, he was the ever faithful husband pursuing the unfaithful bride. In Joel, he was the restorer of all that the locust had eaten. In Amos, he was your burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the judge over all the earth. In Jonah, he is the prophet cast out into the storm so that you could be brought in. In Micah, he is the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is your reason to rejoice even when your fields are empty. In Zephaniah, he is the great reformer. In Haggai, in Haggai he is the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he is the pierced son from whom every eye on earth will one day behold. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. But guys, the Bible doesn't end there, does it? He wasn't just promised in the Old Testament. He came in the New Testament. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the son of God. In Luke, he is the savior born to us in the city of David, Christ the Lord. In John, he's the word became flesh, dwelling among us. In Acts, he is the Christ, the risen Lord, proclaiming salvation to all the nations. In Romans, he is the great justifier, in First and Second Corinthians, he's a spirit at work in the churches. In Galatians, he's the righteous imputed to us by faith. In Ephesians, he is your righteous armor. In Philippians, he's the God who meets your every need. In Colossians, he's the firstborn among all creation. In First and Second Thessalonians, he's descending from heaven with a shout, coming to meet us together with him in the clouds one day. In First and Second Timothy, he's the one mediator between God and mankind. In Titus, he is our faithful pastor. 
In Philemon, he's our redeemer, restoring us to service in him. In Hebrews, he's our great high priest. In James, he's the life at work in our faith. In First and Second Peter, he is our living cornerstone. In First, First, Second, and Third John, he's our advocate. He's pleading his righteousness in our place. In Jude, he's God our Savior. He's the one who keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless in his presence with his great joy. And in Revelation, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Guys, he has always been in the Bible. The Bible's always been about him. Everything in creation is about him. He is the center of it all, and he's inviting you to know him in every passage of the scripture. He longs relationship with you so you can be satisfied in him. And in every book, in every verse, in every chapter, you hear signs and symbols and pointing to him and everywhere because your heart longs to be known by him to be loved by him, to be secure in him, to be empowered by him. And so he gives us 66 books, all pointing us to him. So guys, will you honestly this year, will you accept the invitation to experience him through regularly reading this word? Guys, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, God's saying this to us. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Guys, that's why it's important for us to not just lean on old knowledge of the Bible, which is still good. But what's best is if you take your heart rather than a checklist and you come to the scriptures and you seek God there, not to just check off what you're supposed to, but to interact intimately with him there. The Bible reveals a person that you long to know. Number three, guys, the Bible releases a power that changes lives. A power that changes lives. Look again at verse seven, because we might never make it out of verse seven here. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The commandments of the Lord is pure. They enlighten the eyes. Enlightening the eyes means that the Bible reveals things to us. It helps us to see there. So if you've got a, a physical copy or digital and you can circle, circle the word reviving and enlightening in your Bibles there. Those are powerful, packed-filled words. Guys, when someone needs reviving, it means that something in them is dead or they feel hopeless. It means that they need to be brought back to life. It means that their soul is dead and in need of someone to bring life into them, breathe hope into them. And this is what the author David is saying, that God's word, it revives, it brings life, it breathes hope into our soul. And guys, what is the law of the Lord? What is enlightening our eyes? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's how I just shared that every passage whispers his name. Every passage points to who he is. And God is enlightening our eyes to say, that's what my heart ultimately needs. It ultimately needs this God who is willing to come down in our space to take on our flesh to take on our sin on the cross, to die the penalty that we deserve because of our sin so that our record of sin can be removed and put in the tomb. And through Jesus' resurrection, that he would give you his righteousness, his credit of perfection. Guys, you can't earn your way to heaven. There's no amount of morality or goodness that you can do to get yourself to heaven. That's why Jesus came to live a perfect life. So you could have his record of perfection, his record of righteousness. And then God looks at you through Christ's record and he sees, yes, sinless, yes, perfect, yes. Come into relationship with me for all of time. Be my child, experience my love. God sees us through the lens of Christ. His righteousness becomes our own. This is how the Bible, it, it really does enlighten our eyes so that happens positionally to us. We positionally become his children and we positionally have no record of sin, but practically we do have a record of sin, right? We struggle with sin daily. And so what happens practically is that God uses his word and he says, I want to untangle you from the harm that sin causes in your life. So I'm going to call you out on some things, the Bible tells us, in order to call you into something better. So God puts out laws and, and precepts and commands, not to bound your joy, 
but to bring you freedom so you can experience real joy. So often if you know kids or if you've seen kids in our church, a loving parent runs after a kid who starts darting out our back door trying to run out on a calm half. Some of you have darted after the kids in our church that at the very end were uh, packing up chairs and the kid's running out and you guys are like, no, let's go get the kid. Why don't you just let him go? Because you love the kid, right? Why do you limit the kid from the freedom of calm half? Because you know how crazy calm half is. Love actually does give limits because those limits actually liberate you for better enjoyment. And that's what God's doing. He's not putting a fence around your joy. He's actually giving you a better playground to enjoy him in. Does it make sense? It's a weird Christian thought, but that's what God's doing. So he enlightens our eyes. He says, no, 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 you, you can't run out in a calm ave. You can't live this way. You can't look at these things. You can't live with this person. You can't do those things because it's going to hurt you. It's going to harm you. It's not going to work out the way you think. And I want to I bring you out of those. So every time the Bible calls you out, it's not condemnation. It's calling you back in. I'm from the South and from North Carolina and we've got some friends that have a farm. And if you've ever seen a, like a Southern person call in cattle or call in pigs, it's really weird. I'm not gonna do a cattle call, but it's kind of weird. But they're responding to the voice to come in from where they were. They're getting called out, the animals are, but they're being called in because a storm's coming or they're, they're out where they shouldn't be. So they're calling out to these animals and they're bringing them in and God calls us sheep. He calls us his shepherd and he calls out to us through scripture and he says, let me enlighten your eyes. Come back over here. My, my goal is not to condemn you, it's to call you back in. So guys, there might be some areas of your life where you honestly got to score up with and say, man, this is not really going to bring me the freedom I want. This is not going to produce the escape I think it will. This vacation, this materialism, this sex, this pornography, this alcohol, this person I'm dating, it's really not going to provide me with what I really think it is. And maybe you haven't read the scripture, you haven't come to church, you haven't prayed because you're afraid you're gonna get called out. Let's flip the script for a moment. You're not being called out, you're again, you're being called in to something better. So where are you resisting? Where are you resisting God's work in your life? Where in scripture are you being called out for but you refuse to follow? When you step into it, you will find a greater joy, a greater satisfaction, a greater levity, I promise you. I lost my place here. It started mouthing off here. Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, that the Bible is the word of God and it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. Guys, over the course of my life, I've only been a Christian. I'm 35 now. I think 35. I think that's how math works. I was born in 88, 35. Yeah, 35. <laughs> it's been a long life. Um, and I haven't, I, I've only been a Christian for 15 years. Became a Christian when I was 20. I think that's still how math works. Became a Christian when I was 20. It's not, it's not going so well. Didn't write this down. But over the course of my 15 years, there's been multiple scriptures that God has used to enlighten my eyes and direct me. By the way, what I love about the Bible is that I'm not some guy that like goes in some room somewhere and is like gets a word from the Lord and then comes and give it to you. Like God already gave you the word from the Lord, by the way. And so I go read the same things you read. And this is what God has done for me when I've read it. Guys, as a non-Christian, I read Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And God used that text to bring me to faith in Jesus. Like I trusted that God was real, that Jesus was actually a historical figure, that he like, really was God, that he really rose from the dead. Like, I actually believe that at 20, reading this passage. I read a lot of other material, read a lot of other philosophy, read a lot of other religion, but there's something about this passage that gripped my heart. So I read it and believed. When I was dating Emily, I had not ever dated as a Christian before and had led lots of bad relationships and had been really sexually active in, in wrong places and spaces in my life. And I'm like, how do I do this as a Christian? God, can you like help me here without the shame and guilt? And he answered and he gives me this Proverbs 31 picture of what a godly woman looks like. And I read this passage and I'm like, yeah, how do, like, yeah, how do I be like worthy enough to have someone in my life like this? I read this passage and I look at Emily. I'm like, man, they seem like they're the same thing. Proverbs 31 woman and which is kind of wisdom personified in that passage. But I look at Emily, I'm like, yeah, that scripture led me to 
marry Emily. And that's actually the passage I read to her when I proposed. It was like, this is what I see in the Bible. You're the best version of it. Will you marry me? Like, give me a shot. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to propose. I read this and this was her. Guys, I read James 1, 27 and Ephesians 1, 5. And I look at this and it talks about this father that loves the fatherless and we're to care for the orphan and the widow. And I read this passage and I'm like, Emily, I, how do we step into foster care and adoption? What, what do we do here? And as a church, we've all stepped into foster care and adoption. We all are trying to care for the little ones. And when I read Deuteronomy 6 and this passage about how to love and raise children in the faith and for Emily and I in particular with our story and some blessings we have, it led Emily and I to pursue this homeschool, Christian school combo that our kids go to that they'll be educated through. Guys, I read Ephesians 4.12 in college and it lit a, lit a kind of fire under me to like, how do I shepherd God's people? How do I love them? How do I, how do I lead them? How do I, how do I pastor? I read Ephesians 4.12 and it set the trajectory of my life. I was being taught at the public school to be, uh, I was seeking to be a teacher and I was gonna be a high school teacher and I was gonna teach history. It was my aim in life, which would have been a great aim. Still a great aim if you're a teacher, wonderful one. While reading the scripture, God course corrected and said, hey, I, I'm leading you to be a pastor. So then I'm like, great, I'm almost done with school. I gotta go to another school. And then went to get my master's in divinity, which is a bogus name. I've not mastered the divine. Whoever named that gets zero points in my book. And then last guys, I read Acts 13, I read Romans 15. And in those passages, it talks about going to areas where there's not a lot of gospel impact, where a lot, a lot of people don't know Jesus for who he is in the scriptures. They don't know the Bible the way the Bible is to be known. And God used those scriptures in Acts 13 to prompt our hearts to move to Boston where we had no money. We were in debt. I was like, how do we make this work? Moving with my in-laws, moving the basement, moving to the like third most expensive city in the US. I'm like, I don't know how to make this work. Some other people from North Carolina are crazy enough to do it too. People from Brookline are like, sure, we'll go plant a church with you. You're crazy, we're crazy. And we all jump in this. People move from Texas because we all read these verses talking about the lost knowing Jesus and we wanted many to know him. We were lost and God found us and we want others to know Jesus. So we all read the same thing and it prompts us to go share the gospel with our neighbors. Guys, I don't have a lot more time to unpack this, but there are, all these scriptures are pointing my life. And although my life has been harder becoming a Christian, it is far better being one. And I'm thankful that God doesn't just whisper something in the night to me that I'm like, was that the pizza I ate? Was that just a scary film I just watched? Or was that like you speaking to me? I don't know. I don't have to just leave it up to a voice. I, I have a book that's, living and active and God speaks through it and directs our lives. So verse 10 of Psalm 19 tells us, because of that, they're more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Gold is precious for material things, but for all of life, the scripture is good for. So sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb is how sweet and good and nourishing and delightful are the words of God when you know them intellectually and you know them intimately and you follow them obediently in our lives. Last thing here, point four. Guys, the Bible relays both warnings and rewards to those who heed them. Now I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not, this is not a health and wealth and happiness sermon. Obey God's word and wait for a Ferrari. If you do this obedience, then God's going to give you a million dollars. If you tie to the church, you're going to get a house. We're in Boston. No one gets a house, okay? No one gets a house. Just kind of kidding, sort of, maybe not really. But here's what we learn here. Verse 11 through 14 ends this way of this passage. David says, Moreover, by the word of God is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. He's saying there's great satisfaction. There's great benefit. Helping him walk this path that was designed for him to walk on. So he says, who can discern his errors, a person's own errors? God, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. That's what the Bible does. It helps us to find those faults. We bring them to God, he forgives us. So he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That's what the Bible will do for us. And he says, let them not have dominion over me. That's the thing about sin, guys. Sin is not just this thing that you think you have on a leash. 
sin often has us on a leash. And we think I just kind of dabble over here and I'll look at these things or I'll lie about this. And we think we have control over it. But the more we feed that dog of sin, the more it barks and bites and attacks us back. Guys, we're, we, we can't play with sin. You don't play with sin. Sin, amen. We don't play with it. Yeah, that's right. Someone's listening over there. Yeah. Uh, one, one famous Puritan pastor talked about that, it, that sin is either killing you or you are killing it, John Owen. And there's no in-between. There's no playground. There's no play date. There's no date night. There's no hangout. There's no bar night with sin. It's either killing you in your life or you're killing it. And guys, that's what David's talking about. We're, we're warned in this passage and we're rewarded by walking God's path. Not that he's like extra blessing us, which there is some scriptural precedent for that, but the blessing is knowing him and walking in the path that he's designed for our flourishing, for our good. That's the design of it. It's for our benefit. Guys, in fact, let me leave you with this last stat. If you're like, Aaron, everything you've said for the past 40 minutes, I reject all of it. Well, so glad you're here. Here's one more thing I want to give you. It's a study. Guys, in 2009, the Center of Biblical Engagement compiled an extensive research into a document called Understanding the Bible's Engagement Challenge, Scientific Evidence for the Power of Four. In this study, they pulled four, uh, excuse me, in this study, they pulled 40,000 people ages eight to 80, and they wanted to see how people were engaging with the Bible. And so they compiled the results and what they found in their discovery was not actually even what they were thinking that they would discover in the very beginning. Here's what they found. For a Christian who reads their Bible one day a week, they saw no change. For a person who reads the Bible two days a week, no change. Someone who reads the Bible three days a week, they see a small little uptick in joy, but then they tank out. But something clicks over in their scientific study at day four. Why four? I have no idea. Don't get weird with numbers on me. I don't know. Just day four, something happened. When someone reads or listens to the scriptures four times a week, they found this. They found that they were more bold in sharing their faith. They grew faster in their faith. Their lives begin to have a more profound impact on those immediately around them. They also found themselves at lower places of stagnation and depression in their personal life. And so here's actually what they found statistically. Over 40,000 people, here's the percentage. When people read or studied the scriptures four days a week, feelings of loneliness dropped 30%. Anger issues dropped 32%. Bitterness in relationships dropped 40%. Alcoholism dropped 57%. Sex that wasn't designed, it means outside of marriage, dropped 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant, it drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. And discipling others in your life jumps to 230%. They're pull <coughs> this study is polling again 40,000 people and they're seeing that there's something happens on the fourth day that begins to change in their life. And what we're seeing is that truth from Hebrews 4, that the Bible is living and active and it's doing things in our life. Guys, I want to be honest. I've been a pastor for over a decade and I'm, I'm not proficient in everything. I don't claim to be, but here's what I find a lot. I find this trend. Those who are most discouraged and most stagnant, most frustrated, have the least relationship with the scriptures. They know it intellectually, but in terms of intimacy with it in their daily life, it's very detached. What I'm not saying is that we don't need medication for depression. I'm not saying that. Doesn't mean we don't seek counseling. Doesn't mean we don't use other avenues. But what I am saying is this. There's a direct correlation. I'm struggling. I'm stagnant. I'm frustrated. I don't feel like I'm growing. I don't feel like I'm seen. I'm bitter. I'm, I'm irritated. And there's a correlation to I'm also not in God's word. So of course I don't feel seen. Of course I don't feel loved. Of course I feel like my life is out of direction. I feel like life is chaotic. 
because it's in the scriptures that we're actually grounded in what reality really is. And if we felt like we've not grown this past year, the question is how much have you really been involved in God's word, listening to it, reading it, studying it? So here's what I want to do. I want to end kind of with how Jenna actually started her announcements. Guys, we do have a really simple Bible reading plan. That's what I love about this, guys. I'm not like writing devotionals for you. I'm like, here's the Bible, go read it. Um, In the lobby, guys, I want all of you to consider this. Guys, what we have is that we're gonna read as a church the entire New Testament together. Some of y'all are real extra and I love you. So I put additional reading down for you to read the rest of other scriptures. And so what we did the other year, we kind of compiled some of the most crucial chapters in the rest of the Old Testament. And we put those in, in each month as well. There's certain lineages and genealogies that are important, but we kind of like didn't put those in the reading plan. But over the year, if you read this, you'll read the entire New Testament. And if you want the extra reading, you'll read the majority of the Old Testament. And then on this, we've put some scripture memory for you. Now I've shared this before, I hope it's not super weird, but uh, it's easy. Wherever you're getting ready in the morning, you can put scripture on your mirror. You can put a protective sheet over a print about, printable piece of paper, put it in your shower in the morning, put it in your refrigerator, wherever. Put, put the scripture that you want to memorize and just put it where you're going to stand in front of for a minute. If you're going to stand in front of the refrigerator, take the sheet off, pick out what you want to eat, look at the scripture again. If you're in the shower, brushing your teeth, look at the mirror, whatever it is, take a moment and put the scripture there and begin to meditate and reflect on it. Because it's really simple. Really simple. There's a thousand different plans out there. If you don't like this plan, that's fine. But what we try to do, which I'm bad at, which is part of my resolution for this year is to be way better, is to actually post some things I'm reading and learning in our Slack channel. We have a Bible reading Slack channel. It's the quietest one. As the year goes on, we're all like hyping the first month, like, here's what I'm learning in Genesis. And then February happens and we're like, bro, I don't, I don't even know where my Bible is. You know, like we kind of get lost in there. My goal is not perfection. It's your intimacy with God, your walk with God. So if you're like, bro, this is too much, I want to challenge you and say it's not. You watch more Netflix than you've ever read. You're okay. But I also understand some of us are in really difficult seasons. Read something. Walk with God intimately. Know him. Guys, on the back of this is the five looks. There are a thousand ways you can study the Bible. A thousand ways. This is one really simple way you can remember this. I'm teaching this to my kids. And it's simple. It's silly because they giggle at the first two letters, but I say PPGG spec. The dumbest like acronym possible, but they giggle at it, they remember. Look at the people and look at the passage, look at God, look at the gospel, and then last, look at your life. And then I use the acronym SPEC for life. Is there a sin that you could avoid? Is there a promise to keep? Is there an example to follow? Is there a command that you must keep? A really simple, there's OIA, there's a thousand methods, but on the back of this is a simple way that you can read. So tomorrow you read Genesis one and two, and then you'll ask yourself these questions. Huh, what jumped out to me in this passage? What was confusing? Huh, let me think about that for a minute. For me, I open up Microsoft OneNote and I, every day I'm describing what I'm learning. So I'm looking through my little questions and I'm like, all right, what's frustrating me about this passage? I don't understand what it's talking about. What's frustrating me? Man, I just don't know if this is true in my life. Struggling here. I look at the people in this passage, what they're involved in. I look at these, what what are they doing? What mistakes are they making? What are they learning? And I'm like, God, where am I like these people? Where have I gone astray? Where am I struggling? Then I look at God in the passage. I'm like, where am I seeing God's character on display in this passage? What is God seeking to teach me here? Is God saying or doing anything? And I'm trying to record this. Where am I needing to learn about God's character in this passage? Then I look for the gospel in the passage. I look through and I'm combing through the verses and I'm like, does this foreshadow Jesus in any way? Does it show me my need for him in any way? Is it pointing to him or his perfect life or his sacrificial death or his physical resurrection in any way? And I I write those down. And then I have to look at my own life. I'm not done with reading the Bible until I look at my own life and submit it to the scripture. Then I say, God, where in my life do you need to have your way in my heart? Just like David prayed, God, keep me in your ways. Help me to know you. Keep me from sin. So I look at my life and I ask those questions. God, is there a sin here that I need to avoid in my life? Is there a promise that I've better got to keep 
Is there an example that I should follow in this passage? Or lastly, is there some sort of command that you've given me that I've got to obey? Because I, I really want to encourage you. I, I really ask that you consider something like this. Even if this plan's overwhelming, the best thing about this, when we created this, is if you fall off at any point in the month, just keep reading. You don't have to go back. Quit going back, okay? I'm giving you the freedom. Don't go back anymore because that's when you stop, right? That's when you stop your reading plan because you're like, okay, I'm, I'm two days behind now. Three is behind. No behinds anymore, okay? No buts, no behinds, no going backwards. Just read the day you're on. You miss 37 days in a row, don't miss 38 days in a row. Does that make sense? Just keep reading what's in front of you. Also, what I love about this, that if you're really like super OCD on some things or maybe clinically OCD and this is difficult for you to follow, listen, what we've done is help you. If you fall off the map for Matthew, then the next month focuses on Mark. We try to do one book of the New Testament roughly every month. And we try to have, give you a clean start every month with chapter one of a new book. Does that make sense? Guys, if I, in my last two seconds with you here, my biggest desire for us as a church is not to be like, oh, that's a cool-ish sermon on the Bible. It's for you to literally, the biggest encouragement would be go home and read your Bible. Go home and study it. Go home and reflect on it. Go and meditate, go obey it. And guys, you will watch joy increase in your life. You will watch our church grow in strength and numbers. You will watch our ministries flourish. Guys, would you do this? Would you heed these words today? And would you follow these four things that we just learned? Guys, let's just not look at the Bible as something that we ought to do, but something that we will do this year. Guys, let's all commit to studying the Bible and letting it lead us in 2024. Let's pray together.